introducing the Brain Can Do Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Brain Can Do Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Stevenson. Been away for a couple of weeks, uh, taking a break from the podcast as we've been sorting out all the joys of the teacher assessed grades um, and commiserations to all of you out there. Uh, whether you're teachers, uh, senior leaders, exam officers doing that uh, because I know everyone is working extremely hard at the moment. I think there's a bit of a misconception in the public that assessments have finished so it's everyone's on holiday mode and definitely know that is not the case. This week I'm lucky enough to be joined by Nick Potts who's an expert in human capital management and he shared with me his career and lots of great advice to young people. So Nick thank you for, for joining us today, how are you doing? Very good, thank you. Yes, and uh, thank you for the invite. Looking forward to it. Yeah, no, very excited. Someone like yourself who had such a a varied career and quite a big open-ended question to start with. But could you give us just a a whistle-stop tour of your of your career, if possible? Sure. I, my my career might be varied in terms of different organisations and styles, but it's always been in human capital management. So. Uh, very quickly, I did a degree in business studies, um, and as part of that, I had to write a thesis. I became uh, really interested in industrial relations, uh, and I uh, I did my thesis on uh, the influence of the press on industrial relations. Um, there had already been some work done on the influence of, uh, of of television, and I decided to focus on a different part of the media, uh, and I used as my case study Ford Motor Company. Uh, and I was very lucky. I wrote to the then HR director of Ford Motor Company, a chap called Paul Roots, uh, in those days. And uh, he said he'd happily have a chat with me. I went down and had a chat with him. And at the end of that, he said over the following year, 18 months, I could go anywhere and talk to anybody I liked, trade unionists, um, uh, the, you know, management, etc. Um, the only deal was that I had to uh, present my findings back to the board at the end of it. Um, so I did, and I, I met several um, uh, senior uh, industrial relations correspondents, uh, Keith Harper of the, uh, of the Guardian, Barry Devney of the Mail, I seem to remember, uh, and uh, several senior trade union leaders like Ron Todd, and I interviewed lots of people in, uh, in Ford in the plants. And at the end of it, I went and presented a very naive bunch of uh, research and feedback to the Ford board, and they offered me a job. And that's, that's how I ended up in industrial relations and in HR or as it personnel as it was in those days in Ford Motor Company. So I joined as a graduate trainee, did a couple of years there, um, and then I followed a fairly established route for people from Ford uh, going into Grand Met, Grand Metropolitan. Uh, from there I went to a sister business called Allied Lions, um, uh, and all of that was kind of HR in, in a fairly traditional sense. Um, uh, for instance, in, in uh, Taylor Walker in Coop, we still had a brewery, Romford Brewery, which was, you know, uh, still quite uh, heavily unionised and industrialised. We obviously had pubs, tenanted and retail pubs. Um, and, and then things got slightly interesting. Um, uh, I have I have always, uh, I have a very musical family and I had nearly become a professional opera singer at one point and uh, had a scholarship to the Guildhall and decided not to go down that route for reasons I'll tell you another day and um, uh, but uh, I was approached to become the general manager of HR for Warner Brothers and East West Records for UK and Europe um, and that was too interesting an opportunity to not take 
So I went and worked for them only for about 18 months, principally because the career, uh, the, 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 the um, uh, business sector was extremely attractive. And it was great fun in my late, you know, mid to late 20s to be able to go to any concert I wanted of any artist and go to backstage parties and all of these sorts of things. The job was terrible because they didn't really want somebody, you know, these uh, creative people didn't really want anybody who uh, really was trying to put some uh, structure around appraisals and performance and things like that. They just wanted somebody who could fire expensive prima donnas uh, fairly uh, without too much fuss. So I, I stayed there about 18 months and, and that during that time was approached by uh, Virgin. And uh, I, um, uh, and I was approached to be the HR director of uh, what was called Virgin Travel Holdings, which was Virgin Atlantic Airways, the holiday company, cargo, aviation services, so everything to do with the airline uh, business and its surround. Um, and uh, a long, long uh, series of interviews. Uh, and eventually I had to go meet uh, a chap called Mr. Richard Branson at his house in Holland Park. And um, uh, they offered me the job. Uh, so I went to work for Virgin in really a very exciting time. It was around 1990 to 95 I was there. Uh, and um, it, it, it was a period of, of very significant growth. Uh, and the opportunities were amazing uh, because I would be, uh, you know, we would be setting up new routes and I'd be going out to Hong Kong, for example, to try and establish an airport operation, hire local staff. Um, uh, ensure that we were compliant with all the government regulations out there. And I was 28 years old and had no idea what I was doing. So it, it was very exciting. Um, uh, inevitably, I fell out with Richard. A bunch of us did, and we all resigned on the same day. It's a long story. Um, and uh, I left, and that's when I joined Pricewaterhouse as a, uh, then a management consultant. Uh, Pricewaterhouse became... And, and focusing on HR, human capital management, and uh, Pricewaterhouse became Pricewaterhouse Coopers, and then IBM bought the consulting division of Pricewaterhouse Coopers in 2002, um, and I stayed with IBM until I retired in April. And uh, you know, I, I had the opportunity to have a reasonably long career in line HR, and then become a consultant in, in HR, and I think that stood me in good stead. There's a lot of people who go straight into consulting, perhaps don't have as uh, deep an understanding of what HR professionals are trying to achieve. Um, and I think I had a better grasp of what the strategy of HR was uh, and what organisations were looking to do and how I could help support them do that. So, sorry, it's a long rambling answer. Mm -hmm. but that's my career. I was going to say, a very distinguished career. Thank you for sort of summarising it so succinctly. There's so much to sort of delve into. Um, what would you say is the, the best part, looking back at your career, what's the best parts of the jobs that you've done? Um, I, I, think, uh, I, I think that probably the most exciting job I did, ex uh, uh, which people are often surprised by, is that um, I, I was fortunate enough because of my experience with Pricewaterhouse, Pricewaterhouse Coopers and IBM to work all over the world. Uh, and one of the roles that I did um, in the early, very early 2000s uh, was work with the board of McDonald's in uh, Chicago, Oak Brook, Illinois. And I was in Chicago for about 18 months uh, helping 
the board rethink how HR worked in McDonald's. And it was probably the most exciting job I did. And the reason for that was um, a lot of the McDonald's board had started life flipping burgers in restaurants at age 15. And this enormous behemoth of an organisation had grown up underneath them. And um, they, they were, it, so it was quite a blue collar environment, uh, funnily enough. And, and, but they were really open and engaging for change and wanted to listen and wanted to understand and wanted to, uh, to, to really try and progress and move the organisation forward. And I really felt that it was something where we had an opportunity to properly make a contribution. Quite often when you work in a consulting environment and, and this, or, or in any business environment, you will find that there are people who don't want to change, who view, you know, and, and sometimes HR itself can be what I would describe as the immune system of the organisation. It's designed to kick out anything that might represent change because change is a threat. Um, and McDonald's weren't like that. And that made it a very, very exciting uh, role to uh, to be a part of. Very cool. Um, on on that, in terms of how do you cope with people who are, are perhaps less willing to change? Well, I think um, uh, the, the first thing is obviously uh, uh, persuasion, an attempt at persuasion, an attempt at understanding, uh, and, and, and an attempt to use uh, logic uh, to try and help them understand why change could be good. Um, clearly, one of the key leaders is why change could be good for them. Uh, and how if they participate in and own that, they could develop their own role in the organisation. I also, though, encourage organisations to be prepared to weed the flower bed. Sometimes people just aren't either going to be right for the future of the organisation or are not, do not have the capacity to, to, to actually become adaptable. Uh, and in those cases, sometimes you have to say, well, I'm afraid you're not right for the way this organisation is going. When, when um, I always remember that when uh, Price Waterhouse was going to become Price Waterhouse Coopers, um, you have an organisation that has uh, uh, consulting partners who are owners of the business. And uh, there was quite a bit of resistance to this change. And I always remember the, uh, the then head of the consulting business standing up and saying, there are two types of partners that are here in front of me today. Those who will be with the organisation and can change and those who will have left. And uh, I thought that was <laughs> quite a prescient thing to say. I really like that. Um, imagining in your role, managing difficult conversations occurs quite quite frequently um how do you you say the people who are less willing to change but have sort of got potential how do you approach dealing with someone who you want to get on side who you see the value in but are, are reluctant to change I, th I think the first thing i want to do is to understand whether i really believe that uh they have uh, a, a valuable contribution to make because um uh you know we, we, we there are people who can become real apostles in an organization who can who can buy in and have the skills and can demonstrate leadership and and if you're in a consulting role you're not part of that organization and it, it's much more powerful to have people who are and people who are recognized as influential and that doesn't mean influence doesn't have to come with power and status influence can come with how you are regarded within an organization uh, so you can be a leader in very different ways 
Um, uh, but if, if they have a, a genuine ability to influence other people and take people on a journey with them, uh, then you really want to to uh, buy them uh, into that. Uh, and a, a lot of it is about compassion. Uh, it, it's it's very easy to judge and judge very quickly why people uh, are resistant to change. But actually, you need to understand them and you need to understand what is beneath their fear of change, because it can be all sorts of different motivations. And until you unpick those motivations, it's very difficult to then try and address them and help them. Um, so I think uh, uh, a, a degree, a significant degree of compassion and a significant degree of being prepared to do your detective work and try and spend time talking to them and with them and understanding what it is that they have in terms of hopes and fears, because then you can target your messages towards that. Excellent stuff. Um, throughout your career, you must have seen a lot of different sort of business leaders and leadership styles. For you personally, what do you think makes a, a strong leader? Mm. Very interesting question. Uh, and the first thing I would say is that there, there, there are different situations that require different leadership styles. Um, so uh, you could have a crisis situation which requires a leadership style which is, uh, which is authoritarian and telling. Uh, and, and the obvious example of that would be a military situation where, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I've, we're all witnessing or have been witnessing recently the, uh, the conflict in, in Israel between Palestine and Israel. I was in Beersheba uh, working for a business called uh, Israeli Chemicals Limited uh, when Gaza bombed Beersheba and I had to hide in the stairwell. Now, it wasn't a time, well, the, well, the bombs came in, it wasn't a time for a conversation about, you know, did I, what was my views on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict? And, you know, did I feel that hiding in a stairwell was an appropriate response to how I felt about the situation? It was a time for someone to tell me, get in there and get in there now. Yeah. So there are situations where that type of leadership is appropriate. Um, there are situations where, uh, actually, as long as you kind of follow the, the procedures and protocols uh, that have been established because this thing has been done many times before, uh, it should work. And, and that's, a, that's a, a different type of leadership, um, which requires the ability almost to be uh, a project management leadership style. Um, there are several examples of that in the medical world, believe it or not, heart surgery is considered routine. So as long as you actually follow the um, follow the manual, you should be successful. Uh, it's the same with rolling out a large technology system, really. Frankly, that, you know, that, that there are ways to do these things. Uh, and it's it's been done so many times that there's an established way of going about that. Um, so, so that that's a different. And then, and then the final one is leadership in a situation where there is no clear and obvious right outcome. Um, and the 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 example that's often given with this is something like uh, the um, Cuban Missile Crisis, and 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 how that was handled by the um, the president of the day, Kennedy, in the way that he spent a lot of time in what the military saw was dithering 
but actually what he was doing was not making a decision. The military wanted, yes, we have to attack and we have to attack now. And that to them was a decisive uh, uh, behaviour. But actually, he wasn't sure that the outcome of them attacking and then them being attacked would be the right outcome. So he spent a lot of time asking for asking questions, asking for more information, looking for uh, how you make those decisions. I think it's a very interesting lesson in terms of the way the government is handling lockdowns and use of data nowadays, you know, and, and um, uh, you know, is that approach uh, to really questioning and understanding and being clear about the data, you know, that they're, they're talking a good game on doing that. I, I don't know whether they really are doing it as thoroughly as I'd like them to. So, so. Sorry, it's long-winded, but my, fir my first answer would be there are different situations that require different leadership styles, and they can apply in all sorts of businesses. I, when I worked for Grand Met, we had a leader who came in who was on the authoritarian end because we were struggling financially. Uh, he only lasted 18 months, but he did his job because he turned the ship round. But he would have been no good in building the right culture and consensus to take us forward. Um, so, uh, so there are different, different leaders with different styles. People often ask me about Richard Branson, unsurprisingly, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and was Richard a great leader? Um, Richard, funnily enough, wasn't a natural leader, uh, and he made himself one because he recognised that if he could develop himself as a brand, that could be very powerful to the organisations he was working with. And he did that extremely successfully. Um, but uh, at times he isn't the most articulate of people, I think partly because his brain works faster than his mouth works and so he can mumble and, uh, and whatever. But, but what he was brilliant at was two things. First of all, spotting a niche in a market and saying, do you know, the public would really like that. Um, I, you know, that I, 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 and there are lots of examples uh, from the airline. For example, we were the first business to introduce what was called their mid-class, which became premium economy. Now, he saw that idea and went, the public will love the idea of having a business car seat at just above economy price with some of the frills. I think it's very clever. And, and he did a lot of those things. And I've got many examples that I, I would not have bought into because I would have said, no, it's ridiculous. And the other thing was his ability to focus on making it simple and easy and an enjoyable experience for a customer. Uh, and so he, he was brilliant at, at decluttering it and making it uh, an interaction between people that was fun and enjoyable. And those are the two things I would pick out from him as a leader that, were, that really stood out for me. Cool. Lots of really excellent information there. And it seems to me that situational leadership is so important as you say there's not a one-size-fits-all model there um but some of the sort of common themes that you're looking at are definitely that 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 empathy as you've said in terms of un really understanding the people you're working with and what the the situation calls for um looking back and almost going full circle on your your own career um to me it seems like for yourself taking the initiative is something that was really important and sort of paramount to your your early success and getting your your first sort of big big job in the world of education what can we be doing as, as teachers to to encourage young people to take the initiative 
That's a, a, an interesting question. Well, the, the first, first thing I would say is that I don't know enough about the education world. So uh, for, for me to comment on it, um, uh, it you know, it, it is, is very much from uh, a lack of knowledge. But, but I do think that uh, we don't uh, we don't teach people. I would say there are two things. One, one from an education point of view, I'm not sure we teach people enough about business. I might be wrong about that, but real, the real practical applications. And I don't think there's enough uh, crossover between school experience and work experience. And that could be work experience in a white collar way in a business, or that could be work experience in terms of learning skills like uh, like plumbing and electrics and whatever. I wish I had some of those skills. I was I was never taught those and I'm utterly hopeless. Um, and actually it would have benefited me enormously to have some knowledge and skills in, in those types of areas. So I, I do wonder whether our, our education is enough focused on um, uh, what people really will do. And, 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 you know, you read a lot about that, you know, are, are we encouraging people to go into further education uh, that is going to be of benefit to career opportunities that exist or not? I, I, so I'm, I think they're out of kilter. That's a, that's a personal view. And I don't know whether it's right or not. The second thing is that um, and, and uh, we, we used to do in the good old days a lot of um, uh, a, a lot of kind of uh, outward bound type activities that I think have become mired or again I get the sense from the far become mired in in health and safety and fear and worry about accidents uh, etc and, and and therefore they've come away from the curriculum because it becomes too hard I think and and, uh, and the, the consequences for teachers can become too significant if things go wrong um, uh, I, but I, I'm a, quite a big believer in, you know, building rafts to cross streams and, and things like that as ways of uh, helping people develop their team skills, their leadership skills, their practical abilities. Um, uh, and uh, but but it has to be managed very well because we have to be prepared to give feedback and feedback uh, isn't always positive. Um, sometimes you have to sit people down and and this will come as an awful shock to you if it hasn't happened in your school environment and everybody's told you how great you are when the first time somebody tells you you made a right old mess of that you son and uh, you know you've upset this person and you haven't done that very well and you didn't listen here and you know you, you've got to hear those messages and if you're not if that experience isn't being built as a young person um, it's difficult to adapt to later uh, and it comes as an awful shock. That's really good advice. There. I was just thinking um, our head of outdoor education is going to love listening to this because I think a lot of what you say really resonates with what, what he wants to do. And I completely agree with you that I think some of the I think from my, my schooling and, and my best experience as a teacher, so many of them happen outside the classroom. And as you say, that that resilience building and being able to sort of self-reflect is so important that um, I completely agree. I think if we can focus more on that in education, then we're going to be sort of prepping more successful individuals. Um, one of the other things that, that I'm really always sort of interested in, that I want to push with my students, is when they go for interviews, them 
being able to account give the best account of themselves really um from from your point of view what what advice can you give to sort of young people starting out their careers in terms of going for interviews and what what things you'd be looking for uh funnily enough i've uh, been helping three people three young people in the village recently through all of that process uh, and, and I don't think it's changed a lot. Um, I mean, obviously now quite a lot of interviews are conducted through technology and also quite a number of interviews, screening interviews are not conducted by people, <laughs> which is which is a bit of a change. But I think um, the, the first thing that you have to do is understand the question. And and, and for each question that when you're interviewed, you will find that there are an awful lot of common themes that people are going to ask you about. So be prepared. Somebody is going to ask you up front, as you did to me, you asked me at the beginning of this, could you briefly describe your career? Well, somebody's going to ask you, you know, can you tell me a little bit about, you know, your life and your experiences in school and your family? It's pretty easy to prepare for that and to have a short, um, succinct couple of minutes where you briefly tick off some of the things that you want to make. So for every question that you expect, ensure that you have three, four or five points that you want to get across and get across articulately. Um, and then, of course, the old Mike Tyson thing that, uh, you know, every good strategy is brilliant until you get punched in the face. Well, you know, clearly things are going to come at you from left field and you've got to be prepared to take your time and think and and never be prepared and never be um, scared or concerned about taking your time and stopping and thinking about well let me just and, and even ask back so I, I think what you're asking me is the following is that right a that gives you time to think and b it ensures that actually you answer the question that you have been asked which is also really important if you answer a different question they can't give you a mark for it so I think those are the sort of three things I'd pick out. Yeah, brilliant. Nick, massive thank you. Uh, sort of invaluable advice that you've given today and been really fascinating to be able to sort of pick your brains on, on those ideas. So um, I really appreciate all of that today. My pleasure. That was my interview with Nick Potts. A real pleasure to catch up with him. Lots of great ideas there. And I really encourage any young people who are preparing for interviews in particular to have a listen to this. That's everything for the podcast this week. Hope you're doing well. I've been Ben Stevenson.